From Capital News, Illinois, I'm Peter Hancock. I'm Rebecca Anzel. And this is Capital Cast. Today we have kind of a special edition of Capital Cast. We're not coming to you from Springfield, but actually from Godfrey, Illinois, and the campus of Lewis and Clark Community College, where one branch of state government held a special session on Wednesday. Rebecca, tell us what the Supreme Court was doing in Godfrey, Illinois. So uh, Chief Justice Lloyd Carmeier likes to have the court uh, ride the circuit, as it's called. Basically, the court picks up, they move, and uh, they hold session somewhere else. Um, in today's case, Wednesday's case, we are in Godfrey, uh, where we heard t- oral arguments in two cases. Um, it was an effort, uh, Chief Justice Carmeier said, to raise the profile of the judicial branch. And you mentioned the term riding the circuit. That's actually an old 19th century term uh, going back to Abe Lincoln's day when judges and lawyers would literally get on horses and ride from one town to another within their judicial circuit uh, to speed up uh, having hearings instead of having people having to drive into the county seat. So you interviewed Chief Justice Carmeier, and let's listen to a little bit about what he had to say about why uh, he's taking the court on the road. Uh, So we raise the profile of the judicial branch. When people know people, I think they have less fear of the, um, not the branch and and what we do. If we uh, cloak ourselves in secrecy, I think they wonder about it. So So, uh, he's saying this elevates the profile. And a point that you've made, I think, a couple of times is that the judicial branch of state government really doesn't get the same kind of attention that the legislative or executive branch does. And so he thinks that by elevating the profile and getting it out there in front of the public, that uh, it eases people's fear. Uh, once you know about it, once you see it, you're more familiar with it and maybe more trusting with it. So there were two very interesting cases today, and we should point out this was in an auditorium on Lewis and Clark Community College campus that seats close to 1,000 people. It was pretty full. We think maybe there were six, seven hundred people there. Uh, mostly high school students, I noticed, and maybe some community college students and some other people who just follow the Supreme Court around. Uh, but they heard two cases that seemed to be of particular interest to the young audience. Uh, both of these cases had to do uh, with cyberspace, with uh, personal rights and personal responsibilities uh, when acting online. The first of them was the people of the state of Illinois versus Conrad Allen Morger, uh, who had been convicted of some sex crimes. Uh, he was placed on probation. Tell us about what the issue was there. The case basically boils down to whether a government, in this case Illinois' government, can ban someone's access to social media websites, and even if that person is on probation. So there's a belief that a person is in jail or, again, in this case, on probation, uh, they have a limited right to some freedoms that, you know, the rest of us who are not on probation in jail, et cetera, can enjoy. So as a condition of probation, he was told to stay off of social media sites, essentially, because that's a place where he might run into possible victims uh, of future crimes. Uh, But his attorney was arguing that this is, in fact, an unconstitutional violation of 
First Amendment freedoms. And let's listen to what he had to say about that. The public square is now online. And whether or not we personally choose to speak online, we cannot deny that this public square will just become more ingrained in American society. This is the place to speak and interact. This is the place to discuss politics and religion. And of course, it is a place that provides tools for rehabilitation. It is undisputed. Okay, so that was attorney Zachary Rosen saying that cyberspace now, and particularly social media sites, are in fact the modern-day public square. And when you put somebody on probation, but you say that they can't be part of that public square, then you're really taking away a basic fundamental uh, constitutional right, as well as the tools that that person may need to rehabilitate himself. So tell us a little bit about uh, how the state responded to that. So the state has a few points. I'll go over them real quick. Um, First, the state pointed to its definition of a social networking site. Um, They pointed to the fact that it was not a wholesale ban. Um, It's a very specific definition for what a a social networking website is, which includes basically a website that um, a user has a profile. They put up pictures, um, uh, identifying information about themselves, and somebody else has to be able to um, post comments on that person's page, and those comments have to be visible. Um, so, so the state attorney from the attorney general's office made a point of saying, like, Twitter wouldn't necessarily fall under the definition of a social networking website because, um, Peter, I can't post on your Twitter profile, right? Um, right? All the tweets on your page are something that you have either tweeted or retweeted. Um, uh, and so that's interesting because, I mean, I would consider Twitter a social networking website, but the state doesn't necessarily consider that to be the case. So that was one of their points. The other one is um, this wholesale ban on, again, social networking websites that fall within its definition only lasts for the period for which the person is on probation. So in this case, um, Mr. Morger was um, on probation for four years. That's not a wholesale ban for his entire life. It's only for four years. So, Okay. And so let's listen to what the assistant attorney general, Joshua Schneider, had to say about this. That the state may restrict the liberty of someone who is in custody pursuant to a criminal conviction in ways that it could not if that person were not in custody, just free out and about in the world. And because of that, whether a restriction uh, would be constitutional if imposed on someone who is not in custody tells us very little about whether that same restriction is constitutional when imposed on someone who's in custody because those restrictions are governed by different standards. So there he's talking about different standards. If the government were to come in and take away your right or my right to interact on social media, uh, that would be one thing. But this is a person who is in state custody uh, serving a sentence, albeit probation. And so the state has should have the right to take away certain privileges, uh, certain immunities. Um, so it's, it's going to come down to a case of which standard of review is the court going to use. And you and I have been covering the General Assembly, and there's been a lot of talk about social justice and criminal justice reform. Kind of, what's the mood of the General Assembly? Mr. Rosen, um, Mr. Morgard's attorney, had referenced a law that the General Assembly had just passed, basically allowing um, 
those under the custody of the Department of Corrections to have access to certain um, career building websites. Uh, and so he made a point of saying that when that becomes, when that take a, takes effect in 2020, um, those in jail would effectively have greater rights than those on probation who have this ban on social media as per the mandatory probation con- condition that they um, are sentenced to. Okay, and now let's move on to the second case that they dealt with, which I have to say is one of the stranger legal <laughs> cases I've ever heard of. Uh, a man named Colin Du Becker places a $100 bet on what's called a daily fantasy sports website, FanDuel. He loses, and he sues the person he loses to under a law that was passed in Illinois before Illinois became a state. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about what's going on here? I think just for our listeners' amusement, uh, if we back up to this. So this law is called the Loss Recovery Act, and it basically dates back to a time when um, the General Assembly was interested in preserving Illinois' morals. Again, before Illinois was Illinois and it was territory. So this is the early 19th century when yeah. saloons and gaming rooms, gaming halls, casinos, as we might call them now, were considered dreadfully sinful. Mm-hmm. And state and local governments were trying to make sure that they would not thrive in the good <laughs> land of Illinois. <laughs> yes. And so the general idea is, Peter, let's say you and I um, illegally place a bet that, uh, I don't know, 500 people listen to this podcast episode, um, and we place a $500 bet on that. Um, let's say I lose and you collect. I can sue you for that money back, and I can get it back because I lost, and this is, would be an illegal bet. Um, and listeners out there, if you heard this, and within six months I had not collected or sued Peter for my money back because, yeah, I don't know, I lost and I didn't want my money back. Um, a listener out there, you can sue Peter because I didn't sue him for my money back. And you are liable to win three times what I did not collect, which is, you know, a lot of money. Uh, and the general idea when the legislature passed this was to encourage people to not gamble, to make it worthwhile for people to not bother gambling because it was a sin. It was not, it was morally reprehensible and they didn't want to encourage the activity. And I think somebody mentioned uh, the possible case where maybe you have a problem gambler and he or she does not pursue the claim, but the family is suffering because of the losses. So after six months, the husband, the wife, the grown children, whoever, could go after the money themselves uh, and keep it, and the guy with the gambling problem uh, is just out of luck. Uh, But it it was a way of cracking down on the gaming industry. But the idea of using a law that dates back to the early 19th century to crack down on what is now an extremely popular platform of placing uh, bets on fantasy sports. And so this is what the attorney for the defendant had to say about that. The plaintiff has not responded to our arguments and makes no argument how anyone in the world could use this statute to sue anyone in the world. This is a global, virtual, and anonymous environment. And so he's bringing up an issue here because FanDuel is an online platform. Who knows where the servers are? You often don't know who the other person is that you're betting against uh, if you're in one of these head-to-head matchups. Who's to say that the crime actually occurred in Illinois 
and so he's raising the question that could anybody in the world who places a bet on FanDuel sue anybody else in the world using a statute in Illinois? Uh, clearly, he's saying not the kind of thing that the authors of this law in the early 1800s actually anticipated. So let's get to one of the other more interesting parts of this. At the end of the oral arguments in these two cases, and we'll hear decisions about that in the next several weeks or months, uh, but at the end of that, they open it up so that the students can actually ask questions of the attorneys, not of the Supreme Court justices, of course. And so here's a question that came from a, a student named Noah Zuckel, uh, who attends Belleville West High School in this area. And I thought his question really kind of summed up both of these cases and why they're both important. Do you guys expect the rulings of these cases to be used in the future to define cyberspace and what is allowed there and what's not? And here's how one of the attorneys answered that question. Uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think they will. That's called precedent. And so when a case comes out with an opinion, we're going to turn back to that case years down the road and say, what were the justices talking about? What were the facts of that case and how can I apply them to the question I have in the next case? And so the other attorneys were talking about a law that was hundreds, over 100 years old. And they're looking at case precedent that is that old, asking how can we apply what happened there to the case that we have here. And so, Rebecca, what he's saying there is something that we often hear is that technology often advances much faster than the law does. Uh, is that, that a situation that we're looking at here and was kind of encapsulated in these two cases? Yeah, especially in the FanDuel case, although we should probably make clear that it, the, the FanDuel, I shouldn't keep calling it that. Um, FanDuel was actually not a defendant. Yes. It was the other gambler. Uh, FanDuel was just a third party that uh, provides the platform exactly. for this activity. I have to be, yeah, we shouldn't call it that. But in the case um, in which the two parties place their bet through FanDuel, um, that is especially the case because they spend a lot of time arguing about how, you know, as you pointed out, this, this law that was passed before the Civil War, before Illinois became Illinois as we know it, the people who wrote that law could not have possibly imagined what the Internet would look like. Um, and so, of course, when they framed it, they had something in mind, and now look at where we are. Um, the attorney for um, Dubecker, the gentleman who is trying to get his $100 back, um, had said that the law should be fluid. And so it should um, stretch to fit this current situation. And, of course, Mr. Wu's attorney, um, who, interestingly enough, uh, represents the gaming industry, um, had pointed out that this might create a cottage industry of, you know, extraneous lawsuits that might, you know, flow and clog the court system. And so we'll see what happens. And do you think it was a coincidence that the Chief Justice brought these two cases to this community college campus and put them in front of an audience of students who have grown up in the digital age, so to speak? Yeah, when they travel like this, they always pick cases that are of interest. So they did that last year, and they did it again this year. I'm sure they picked the themes on purpose. But yeah, to, in short, they, they do always pick cases that they think would be interesting to a wide audience, easily oh. understood. Okay, so this is, in fact, Lloyd Carmeier's last year uh, serving as Chief Justice. Last full month. His term ends uh, October 25th. 
And who takes over after that? Uh, Justice Ann Burke. She's from Chicago. Uh, so next year, if they go on the road, we can maybe expect them to hear some cases uh, up in the Chicago land. Is that right? Absolutely. Um, and uh, Chief Justice Carmeyer, which again, we can only call him that for about another month, um, his the high school that he attended was invited to come. The high school that his grandchildren go to was here. And so this was really something that he said he enjoyed. And uh, we'll see what um, future Chief du Chief Justice Ann Burke decides to do when she takes over. Okay. Well, that's all the time we have today for Capital Cast. Again, Capital Cast is a production of Capital News Illinois. And until next time, thank you for listening.